city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. We're coming up to November 22nd, and that is the 55th anniversary of the assassination of former President John Fitzgerald Kennedy in the Daly Plaza in Dallas, Texas. With me today, I am pleased to have Angelos Lelaglu, who is a forensic animator. Angelos and I have worked on a couple of nationally prominent cases. He is currently engaged in researching and reconciling the various assassination theories. So welcome to A Thread of Evidence, Angelos. Thanks, Dr. Ron. I'm glad to be here. And let's just start right off about talking about what a forensic animator is and what you do for a living. Sure. Um, so forensic animator, part of my job is to tell a story visually to uh, explain what happened in an accident. And often it involves very uh, complex issues. And I need to be able to tell that story to a layperson, someone you'd find on a jury, uh, in a way that they can clearly understand what happened. And we've got you and Dr. Richard Zernicki, our uh, forensic engineer reconstructionist, and you are part of that team, and you are both now part of the Martinelli and Associates Forensic Death Investigations team. And I have to tell you, as the lead investigator, it's so exciting working with you guys and going out to crime scenes, death scenes with you guys, and having you do the amazing work that you do. Uh, Dr. Ron, what we actually did was we tested the single bullet theory, which is what the Warren Commission came up with, and that's really what we focused on at this point. We'll be doing more tests on other theories later on as this project grows, but at this point, that's what we started with. And that's a very complex uh, shooting, isn't it? It is. Yeah, a lot of things happened. Uh, there's th- thousands of theories out there, uh, but again, what we did was look at just that one, the single bullet theory from the Warren Commission. Well, let's talk about how you would go about doing that and, and reconciling what we call a forensic fact pattern. And so, you know, for, for our listeners and our team members, basically what happens when we get involved in a forensic investigation, we have many, many witnesses and many different stories of what they think happened. But we have to use applied science to test the different statements. In other words, we don't make credibility determinations that say, well, this person's not telling the truth, this person is truthful, we use a variety of forensics and applied sciences to determine more likely than not what is the most accurate fact pattern. Correct. So let's talk about how you went about doing that. So we reconstruct this just like we would any other case. Obviously, it's a very special case. It's not something I get uh, every day. But uh, first thing we do is collect all the data. We take we get all the documents, all the uh, any kind of information about the case, and we analyze it. We look at it and we decide what we're going to do with it. So in this case, the evidence basically is 
photographic evidence, whether it was on film uh, with a video or f uh, photographs. And then we take and we analyze it using scientific uh, techniques and methods. In this case, it's photogrammetry, which I'm sure some of your listeners know about. But some don't. So let's just kind of sure. give them a, a basic idea of what photogrammetry is. Sure. Photogrammetry, actually, it's a Greek word. I'm Greek, obviously. So uh, it comes from the word uh, phos, which is light, gramma, which is letter or something that's drawn, and metri uh, is, is metrin or metro, which is to measure. So it's taking, obtaining measurements from photographs is the simple definition of it. For instance, we uh, often get video uh, of an accident and we see a vehicle uh, getting in an accident or uh, speeding or something like that. And we can look at that image and we can measure things off of it. And so if we have uh, any known measurement inside that video or that image, um, we can then extract information from that and extrapolate other dimensions well, that sounds good. So let's talk about the research that you did on this particular shooting. Uh, sure. Um, we were asked to, first of all, model the Dealey Plaza uh, as accurately as possible. And to do that, we used um, high-definition 3D laser scanning, which is a technology that you've used on your cases as well, um, which is a laser tool um, that goes out and hits a surface and when it hits that surface, it brings back an XYZ coordinate, and it can do that actually up to, it can collect data up to about a million points per second. And I know recently you and I and Dr. Zernicki were in Florida, and we were working a very strange death case there. And how many points of measurement, when you set up your 360, how many points of measurement did you get on that case? Oh, it's over, you know, 45 million each scan. So we got a over a billion points. So after all the scanning. It, just for the audience to understand, we're talking about bouncing a laser beam and getting a measurement. In our particular case in Florida, we're kind of like in a jungle environment. Right. And we had to re reproduce trees and all the leaves and all the branches and uh, everything that was surrounding it. So just picture this laser measuring device hitting every single leaf on a tree, every single branch, every single physical thing that it touches, meaning it bounces off of, it reports that back as a measurement, and then we recreate, what, a 3D diagram of that. Well, it's actually called a point cloud. Excellent. And it's in full color. You can bring it back to your office. You can view it on your computer, and you can measure things just as if you're still out at the scene. So you're collecting everything there, whether you know you're supposed to measure something or you forget to measure something while you're out there. You could then later go back and measure it uh, afterwards. So, so Angelos, you took your device and you went into Daily Plaza, and, and we've both been to Daily Plaza. We've both been to this shooting scene. Tell our listeners how you went out there and you set up your measuring device, and what did the measuring device do? Well, actually, I needed a, a, a permit from the city to do that in that area. It's a special place. Went out there, tripod, a portable uh, scanner, very lightweight, and just like taking photographs. You put it on there, you set up some parameters, and it starts spinning around, shooting out lasers, and you're waiting for this thing to collect all this data. Uh, obviously, you've been there, so there's 
there's there's theorists out there who are selling their books. <laughs> there, there's there's buildings, there's people, there's vehicle moving by. There's a Daily Plaza is a very busy place. Yeah, and lots of tourists, obviously, and they all wanted to come ask me what I'm doing. Am I working for Google Earth? Am I part of? I was wearing actually, I think I was wearing this shirt, Columbia, and someone thought I was working for Columbia Pictures. Uh, lots of different people ask me questions because uh, it's they don't see it every day. So and they, they knew something was going on. And then you're going to take that and turn that around into a a virtual animation of of what the premises looks like. Well, what we actually did was use that. So that's a very accurate representation model of Dealey Plaza. Again, it's within just a few millimeters. So we can say from point A to point B is X, and we know it's very, very accurate. So we'll use that information using photogrammetry to find out where things are, for example, the presidential limo, where it is on Elm Street as it's coming down as the shots were being fired. We also use photogrammetry, again, using those known data points that are highly accurate uh, to determine where President Kennedy was, where Governor Connolly was in the jump seat in front of him, and where they are relative to each other because bullet trajectory analysis is dependent on that, where they are uh, relative to each other. So, Angelus, one of the things that I remember in reading the Warren Commission, and I was just fascinated by that case because it's a death case, right? It's a shooting case. And I know there was a man there, a very famous man now, Abraham Zapruder, and he was actually there with a uh, with a camera, uh, an automatic camera, I guess, in those yeah, days is yeah. what they would call it. And he was filming that, and that was the primary uh, photographic evidence that I think everybody sees when the Kennedy assassination uh, appears on a documentary. Can we talk about that camera, uh, how you found one like it, how rare is that camera, some things like that? Sure, yeah. The Zapruder film, um, the famous, most famous, it's the only complete film of the assassination known to exist. There's other uh, recordings of the assassination parts of it. There's photographic or still images as well. But this is and captures or captures the whole thing. So that's why it's probably the most well-known. It's the most graphic. You can see it up close. So Zapruder was using a Bell & Howland. I brought it today. It's um, a 414 director series camera. Um, and the, the, the person behind it is Peter Russo, who's a documentary producer. And he's working with John Orr, who's behind this whole project. Um, and he happened to have it. He sent it to me. I found a, a shop in Hollywood, California, of all places, that had film that would work in it. They sent it to me. I loaded it up. Uh, well, how many millimeter was was it? A sixteen millimeter? Eight millimeter. Eight, eight millimeter mm-hmm. Half of that. That's right. So, yeah. how many? Can I? I don't know if you know this, but how many frames per second does that uh, camera produce a film on? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, so, obviously, it's not digital. It's me- it's mechanical, and it. Um, it depends on how tight you wind it, is, the, is I think the correct answer. I'm not an expert on it, but the Zapruder film, I think, was analyzed, and it was shot at about 18.3 frames per second. Okay, so le- now you said something that's interesting to mm-hmm. me, because I only have so much expertise on cameras. So this was not a battery camera. This is one where you physically wound it like you wind an old watch. That's right, yeah. And so the tighter you wind it, I think the faster it actually uh, puts the film through there. And then as the the spring is getting kind of uh, it looser, gets looser yeah. yeah, it is it, fascinating. Slow down. Yeah. So it's not really an accurate device, right? I mean, it's accurate in what it what it captures on yeah. film, but not accurate as to how many slides or frames per second are going through the camera. It kind of depends on how tightly it's wound. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
So, okay, Angela, so you're out there with your scanner and you do a scan of the Daily Plaza. About how long did it take you to scan that plaza? Well, each scan take, top, probably takes about 15 minutes, uh, you know, doing the scan and moving it around. And we, I was out there for about eight hours taking scans. So there was a good four, 19, actually 20, something like that. Now, usually in the crime scenes that I deal with, uh, we put it in one central location and we let it scan 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. Did you have to follow that methodology or did you go to different areas around the plaza and do other scans? Because that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a big plaza in one way. One of the things that, that I found interesting is when I got out there, and of course, I'd seen all the documentaries, I'd read a lot of books, read the Warren Report, and I pictured this big, huge plaza. Yeah. But when I got out there, it was actually a heck of a lot smaller than I thought, but still a sizable plaza. Sure. So how many places did you go to? Yeah, actually, they say it's very intimate. They, they, someone said that you could actually throw something and hit Kennedy from that window. Um, I actually had to move it around quite a bit because the way that laser technology works is it only works with line of sight. So whatever the scanner can see, uh, it can collect data. But if something happens to be occluding or blocking that object, you have to go around to get the, the backside of it or more of the plaza. So uh, using triangulation, we move around the scanner and we're able to go back later and register those scans all together to create one large point cloud. And, and how long does it take to create an accurate point cloud that, when I mean accurately, depicts uh, in, in your 3D imaging what that plaza really looks like? Uh, you know, it actually doesn't take very long. Um, just processing time on your computer to, to register all this stuff together. But it's not – relatively, it's not a very long process. It does take time, but not not too much. So, you know, and I know when we were at our scene together uh, in Florida, I was very careful to stay out of the way mm-hmm. of yeah. that camera. So what about, what about these vehicles and these people walking around? Because they're not going to stop everything so you can do your scan. They're right. going about their business. Uh, was that difficult? Did that provide a challenge? It's uh, it's typical of scenes. You're not going to be able to stop traffic. Usually, there will be people walking around. It's it's called noise, uh, which you the software can actually do some filtering and get rid of it, or you can manually go in there and get rid of some of the people walking around. Because as something is passing through that laser beam, it's collecting points. So now that you have the scan, what do you do next? So after we process the scan, we have a point cloud. Then we take the, the evidence, that's the photograph or the video frame that we want to analyze. And we detect points, we select certain points or features in the, in the film or the, or the image uh, that we can also see in the point cloud. And in the two-dimensional image, we say it's X and Y. And then in, we know that it's actually X, Y, Z in the point cloud and feed that information into the software, into the, into the in this case, match-moving software, and the computer will uh, find a solution for where that camera actually is. Now, interesting. Now, did you do all of your scanning on the ground, or did you go up into the uh, famous Dallas Book Depository to do any scanning? Uh, at this point, all we did was the site itself. We did not go up into the depository. But you're scanning the building all the way up. Correct, yes. And, and how many floors was that building? The building was seven floors, I believe. Yeah, seven floors. And, um, but this, the scanner can reach 330 meters is the furthest it can reach. And 
going back to Daly Plaza and comparing it back 55 years ago, mm-hmm. how accurate was the plaza compared to 55 years ago? Because we know, uh, going back in crime scenes, sometimes only five years later, yeah. there are dramatic changes. How was the integrity of the plaza compared to 55 years ago? I was very amazed that even the sidewalk uh, joints were the same. Uh, things around there have stayed pretty much the same. There are obvious changes. One of the most uh, distinct changes was the Demons Freeway sign was removed. That's the sign that uh, President Kennedy and uh, Governor Connolly go behind for a little bit in the Zapruder film. Um, and we had to recreate that, but that had been removed. So we had to use photogrammetry to reconstruct where that sign was exactly so that we can do our analysis. Another thing that had changed was the um, the lampposts on, on Elm Street. Those had been changed and moved inward away from the road. So a couple of differences like that, as well as the trees are different, things like that. So, Angelos, just for our audience, when you do the point cloud, uh, is it in color? Is it in black and white? How, how does that come out? It's in color. Uh, some scanners can't do color, but most of them nowadays do color. Now, w- when you say color, does it approximate the existing colors or did makes up its own colors? Uh, it actually uh, uses a, just a camera that's on board, and it takes a photograph, and it projects that photograph onto the 3D point and colors it according to whatever's on that photograph. That, that's completely fascinating. <laughs> The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitch your news and entertainment network where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli. And I'm Linda Martinelli. As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter. Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness. And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our response to active shooter training course. Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member. Our response to active shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs. So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims. Our response to active shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event. So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today. Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. So, Angelos, can you explain to the audience what the single bullet theory is? Because there's a lot of controversy, a lot of different theories, but the one that you're involved in testing is the single bullet theory. Sure, I can, I'll try my best. Um, actually, 
I didn't even know what the single bullet theory was when I was first asked to do the project. Uh, and I didn't learn about it till after we did the analysis. I was just told where to do the bullet trajectory from. But to put it simply, the single bullet theory starts off with there's three shots fired by Lee Harvey Oswald in the open window on the sixth floor of the, sixth, uh, of the school book depository building. And uh, we know that because there's witnesses underneath who heard three shots. Uh, there was three, um, three casings found in the, in the depository, the sniper's nest in the depository. Um, and, so, and there was also three hits in the limousine. So President Kennedy was hit in the back, the first hit. The second hit was on Governor Connolly in the back. And then the third shot was to, uh, third hit in the limousine was to President Kennedy's, the back of his head. So three, three bullets, three shots. Everyone thought that there was just three shots. Um, everyone agreed on that. But then a man named James Tague came. So he was standing there under the triple underpass and he was struck in the face by a bullet that had ricocheted off of a nearby curb, and they found evidence of that. Well, you know, this is the first time that I've actually heard of that. So, in other words, we had a, uh, a witness pedestrian that's there watching President Kennedy and his entourage drive through, and he takes a, a splay from a ricochet and actually gets hit in the face with that. That's right. Yeah. Amazing. So now the Warren Commission has to deal with this new evidence that opens it up now to possibly four shots as well as possibly multiple shooters. Um, and then the Warren Commission didn't want that for, for many reasons. Uh, they wanted to be able to tell the American public that there was just a lone gunman with three shots. So in order for that to happen, they came up with what's called the single bullet theory. Uh, and that is that one of the bullets that Oswald shot from the window hits President Kennedy in the back. Or actually, he, they say the neck slightly to the right of the spine, exited the president's neck, and then entered Governor Conley in the right armpit, exited his chest, goes through his right wrist, and then embeds in his left thigh. And, you know, that's the theory uh, and the fact pattern that I have always read and, and seen on television. That's what we were taught in school. That's what I recall hearing. Right. Only one suspect, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, that's right. Well, so, Angelus, did the Warren Commission conclude the order that the bullets were fired and, and when they were fired? Uh, actually, it's my understanding that they couldn't figure that out, and, and that's why it's called a theory, because half of the commissioners couldn't agree on it, and two of them actually wouldn't even sign anything that talked about that. Uh, but they did specify that that single bullet was shot between frame 210 and 225 of the Zapruder film. So what's going on during that time frame? So uh, at 210, we see Governor Connolly and President Kennedy go behind that Stemmen sign. So there's a there's a, a sign obstructing Zapruder's view of the of the presidential limo. Although we can see the front of the presidential limo, so we're able to use photogrammetry to determine where it is in 3D space. And then we're using interpolation uh, of the frame two frames prior to 210, which is 208, and this is 18 frames per second basically. So it's about one ninth of of a second before they go behind the sign. You can see their positions. Well, you know what's interesting, and this is not in your wheelhouse, but it's sometimes 
you know, people like yourself or doctors or Nikki Hanalis, but it's actually something that our ballistic scientist, Lance Martini, would handle if we were brought in to do this investigation. And that's the ballistics and the firearms component of that, where we look at the temporal relationship of how long it takes a a, uh, a marksman, because that's what Oswald was. He was in the Marine Corps, and I believe his classification was marksman or sharpshooter. So he was a pretty good shot with a rifle. This was an Italian carbine, bolt action. So how long, I guess the rhetorical question, maybe if you know the answer, the rhetorical question would be, how long would it take a person that was a decent shot with a bolt action carbine rifle to fire the bullet and then, uh, you know, cock it back again, eject that round, drive the next round into the chamber and depress the trigger for the next round and do that three times. Well, my, uh, you, you hit it on the nail. My, my expertise is not ballistics. It's in <laughs> photogrammetry. So to answer your question, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I just know what the film says. Sure. Yeah. And I'm sure that that's part of the controversy, uh, of course, that you guys didn't reconcile. You weren't there for that. Yeah. But just so the audience knows, guys like us would would ask ourselves, mm-hmm. okay, so how long does it really take someone to pull back the bolt after depressing the trigger, ejecting that round that was in the chamber? Because you got to do it physically. It's not a semi-automatic rifle. And then, you know, cock and lock the next round into the chamber, pull the trigger again, and do it a third time, all while uh, President Kennedy and the motorcade are going X amount of miles per hour down Daisy Plaza Boulevard. Well, Angelos, can you walk us through the various bullet trajectories and and maybe discuss any any findings and opinions that you have with re- regards to the, the research you've done so far? Because I know it's not completed. Right. Sure. Um, so again, the Warren Commission said that single bullet theory, that the single bullet happened between 210 and 225. So that's our, our range. So we took frame 210 of the Zapruder film. We analyzed where the bullet came from. Right. So we start with the origin, which is the muzzle, and then we continue to the entry point on the president, which according to the Warren Commission was the base of the back of his neck, slightly to the right of the spine. And then if you continue that trajectory in a straight line, which is what the Warren Commission said since it just hit soft tissue, according to them, uh, it would exit the front of the president's neck, and then it would strike Governor Connolly in the middle of the back right of his spine and not in the right armpit as the evidence shows it did. Well, that's that's fascinating. Let me ask you a question uh, for our audience. Can for If I ask them to do a homework assignment, could they uh, Google the – uh, Zabruder film, and could they watch it after listening to to us talk about this today? Sure, yeah. If you just Google exactly what you said, if you just Google Zapruder film, you'll get different copies, different analysis on it, but they can definitely see it. Okay, so what we want them to listen to or to watch is actually frames 210 to about 225, right? Right, right. Okay, I think that's a great homework assignment for sure. those people. Yeah. Okay, hey, listen, you know, I want to go backtrack for just a second. And, you know, we've talked about photogametry, but you also mentioned uh, the term match moving. Can you tell us what match moving is? Well, uh, match moving actually is a technique used, you see it every day actually, movies, TV, uh, commercials. Anytime they, for example, if you've seen The Life of Pi, the actor obviously isn't uh, in the middle of the ocean on a boat fighting a tiger. So what they do is they use match moving, which allows uh, 
you solve for the camera and allows you to insert or composite CG, computer-generated objects, into the video and make it appear as if it's really there, realistic. So, so that's what Hollywood does in special effects? Is that, is that the idea behind exactly. that? And so you take something from Hollywood, which is special effects, which is match-moving, which is actually more of a forensic technique, and you use it to uh, reconcile the fact pattern a little bit better, right? In other words, make it more animated so we, we take actually characters or people or objects and introduce it into that? Uh, well, we use match-moving. We've used match-moving a lot in forensics. Um, first of all, because it's based on science, we're able to use, use it to analyze video. And in the past, and we still do this, we actually use match-moving to create photorealistic and accurate animation. And that's where I'm going with that. Right. Yeah, and but in this case, what we're doing, and it's it's only because of advancements in technology like high definition 3D laser scanning and drones and the software itself, that we can now take match moving and use it for analysis, the reconstruction part of it, and that's what we did in, in cases that we worked together and what we did in this JFK case as well. And you know what's uh, what's important for the audience to understand, because we're both forensic experts in, in our respective fields, is that we just can't pull something out of our rear end. We have to use uh, applied science and forensics uh, for all of our findings and opinions. So in other words, every case that, that we investigate, whether apart or together, we have to use applied science. And there's all different types of applied science that we introduce into the investigation. So match moving. How long have you been doing that? Yeah, like I said, we've been using it for decades now in on the production side where we'll be able to make photorealistic, very accurate animations when the reconstruction's already been done. But the past five plus years or so, I'd say, with the advances in technologies, we can now use it for the reconstruction side. So we can use it to analyze, for example, we worked on the, uh, the uh, Tony Stewart, Kevin Ward Jr. case recently, and we uh, were able to determine the path and the speeds and the uh, orientation, the heading of Mr. Stewart's car. And that was the Fast and Furious guy, was that? No, this is uh, NASCAR's uh, Tony Stewart. Oh, no, I know. For instance, we used it on the Tony Stewart, Kevin Ward Jr. uh, fatal racing accident in uh, New York to determine how Tony Stewart's car moved on the racetrack before it made impact with with, uh, Kevin Ward. We were able to find the speeds, the heading, uh, the orientation of that vehicle. So uh, how important have these technological advancements, uh, things like photogametry, match moving, uh, using the Leica 360, all of these different things, you know, developing the point clouds. How has that changed this industry with respect to our investigation of incidents, accidents, and death cases? Well, we can actually just do things a lot more accurately. Uh, We can get closer to what really happened because of the technology that we have. I mean, just think about drones nowadays. You can actually fly up and take photographs, aerial imagery, and be able to create 3D models from that aerial imagery. We couldn't do that 10, 15 years ago. Now, I know we're going, you brought up the word, you know, drone and everything. And so it's important that our audience to know that this is just another tool that we pull out of our, you know, toolbox. And you happen to be our drone pilot. And we used you uh, just last month in that uh, 
the sort of suspicious death case that that we had in uh, in southern Florida. And uh, tell you know, just as an aside, uh, give people a little indication of what it's like uh, to be a drone pilot and uh, and what we do with the drone. Sure. Well, to be a drone pilot, I mean, you can be a hobbyist and go do that. But to do anything commercially, you have to have a FAA certification. So you go and take a test, um, and you're certified by the FAA. There's regulations now, and it's changing constantly, but there's certain rules you have to follow. So that's number one. Uh, and then when you're able to fly wherever you're going, you, you go and you set parameters to some software, and it actually flies over the, the site and takes aerial imagery. We use that aerial imagery to create 3D models, like I said. Or you can use it for uh, for visualization. So if, if I wanted to be able to, again, use match moving to create a uh, photorealistic-looking animation, then I would use a drone f- to get sort of a bird's-eye view or some other cinematic look. And, you know, I've seen the work uh, in the cases we've worked together, and, and your work is just outstanding. It's just amazing what, what you can do uh, with this technology. And, you know, I just want to share with the audience uh, that when Angelos came to visit me today, <laughs> he brought me a, a mini drone uh, set up, and I don't think it was more than an inch and a half the long and it actually had uh, had a pretty nice video camera in it. Yeah. Well, Angelus, you've been uh, spending quite a bit of time uh, talking about the, the technical aspects of your research on the single bullet theory on this 55 uh, anniversary of the John F. Kennedy assassination. So tell me, how did you get involved in this project? Because it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, I got a call one day from, or a message from our receptionist said a man by the name of John Orr called the office and was asking if we could do a 3D model uh, of a crime scene with some animation. He called it a crime scene. Oh, well, it was a crime uh, scene. It was a crime scene. <laughs> and uh, I called him back and he proceeded to tell me he needed a very accurate, highly accurate model of, 3D, of Dealey Plaza uh, to test – some theories about the single bullet theory on JFK assassination. So what do you think the end game of the research project is, is going to be about it? Is it a new documentary? What, what do you think is going to come out of this? Uh, it could be a documentary. I think that's what they were looking to do. Um, the whole idea and, and what's behind it is Mr. Orr has been researching this for decades. He was actually a former uh, senior member of the Justice Department uh, official there. And he, on his own time, uh, did all this research um, as his personal project. And he actually made some discoveries and findings, and he actually did a, a complete reconstruction of the bullets uh, or shots that were fired in Daly Plaza. And he submitted that report to Janet Reno, the attorney general at the time, 1995. And that actually, that report led to the reopening of the investigation where they actually, the FBI did uh, more scientific testing, uh, DNA testing on the bullet fragments. Um, so his what he wants to do is open this up to the public so that we can test all the theories, any theory you want, uh, y- you name it. And you can go into this model and you can take a point here and a point there and make trajectories so that the truth can come out. That's really what he's looking for. Well, there there's so many different aspects, uh, forensic aspects of this case, the, the investigation, how the investigation was originally conducted, 
the quality of the investigation, uh, the different things that happened during the course of the investigation, which was really bizarre. I can remember uh, in, in one of the things that I read is literally when they had uh, President Kennedy being transported on a gurney uh, into the ER uh, for triage, as they lifted him off the gurney, a bullet actually fell and landed on the gurney. That's just one of the things that have been stated about this. I uh, don't know if it's correct, if it's not correct, but you know, that's my point. There, there are so many different stories, so many different theories. What I like about the work that you are doing and, and knowing you personally, as I know it's going to get done right, uh, because you're all about the facts and forensic evidence. And this is the level of investigation we have to have with probably one of the most important uh, murders that we've had in the United States within the last hundred years. Yeah, I would say I'd have to be impartial and unbiased uh, in all my findings. So, The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com. Well, Angelos, your information on the research that you're doing on the single bullet theory on the John F. Kennedy assassination is fascinating. So I think people are very interested in you and your background. Why don't you tell me about your background and how you got into this intriguing area of forensics? Well, I um, have a master's degree in uh, architecture from Texas A&M University, where I was actually working towards getting a doctorate there when I met a forensic engineer who asked me to do some work, some animation work on one of his cases, uh, Jack Maidling called Station. And uh, I, I was fascinated by the work. I, it was something that I, I loved. It was kind of half creative and half scientific, which is what my brain does. And so um, from there, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And I've been doing it now for 15 years. Uh, I've been at, um, my current job is with Not Laboratory. I'm the director of visualization, been there for eight years. Um, yeah, and that's, that's how I got into it. Well, so let's talk, uh, let's talk about that. I know a little bit about architecture because I came from Cal Poly State University in, uh-huh. in San Luis Obispo, one of the better architecture uh, schools in the world. And so how did you move from architecture to forensic animation? Well, it's, it's actually I hire architects because there, there's architects who do this 
because we learn 3D modeling spatially. We have an understanding, and that's and there's science behind it. That's the thing. It's not just this creative. Uh, uh, artsy fartsy kind of thing, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, we we hire some uh, game uh, students and movie guys, but uh, there has to be a base to everything we do. So there has to be science behind it. So when we do, there are people who already have some kind of math or physics background. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna plead ignorance here. Sure. All right, because this is completely out of my wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, and so. You're doing the 3D, you know, uh, structures, and, but those are buildings that are that are standing still. They're not moving. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the stuff that, that we have been working on together there involves movement. It involves an actual, in, you know, incident where, where somebody was killed, somebody died somehow, right. uh, murders, car accidents, uh, you know, murder like the Kennedy assassination, mm-hmm. and then also uh, things falling on people and killing them. Right. And so how do you take the leap from doing a, a 3D structure like a building mm-hmm. and now getting into moving people and moving objects? Yeah, it's you're right. Uh, so the buildings are there, the vehicles are there, but when we're animating, it means we take a keyframe, a time and a point in time, and we then move it to another place in another point in time, and that's animating, one one frame to the other. So things are moving. We actually don't really do that that much anymore. We actually rely on simulation. So our engineers, we have in-house engineers who use simulation software to recreate the accident. We use something called PC Crash, and it uses physics. It's physics-based. So all our animation is based off of actual simulations so that it has that foundation to pass things like the Daubert Challenge and things like that. Okay. Now, uh, with the uh, with the Stewart accident, which mm-hmm. is a fatal accident, I would assume that there was video of that accident. Is that correct? There was. There was racetrack video, and there was some witness videos as well. So I guess my question would be, when there is no video, when there is no photographic evidence, and you do a simulation, how does that take place? Because that must be extremely challenging. Well, what we do is we take the, uh, any available ev- evidence, and that usually is, in, a, in the case of a vehicle accident, some kind of tire marks, debris, if it hits a pedestrian, bodily fluid. Uh, we take that evidence and, and use that, and we have to match that so the, the engineers can take vehicles in virtual space and give initial speeds. There's also things like uh, CDRs recording the, the movement of the, of the vehicle if it's, a, say, a semi, uh, semi-tractor trailer. Sometimes you can download that and get information to start with. Now, you mentioned the term CDR. Mm-hmm. Tell the audience what a CDR is. So a CDR, or sometimes called the EDR, Event Data Recorder, is actually what you also hear it called the black box. So it's a, it records events d- previous to an accident as, as the accident happens. So it takes into account things like hard braking or an impact if the, uh, the airbags go off, things like that, so that we know what's happening during that accident. I think that's fascinating. Uh, were you involved? I know Dr. Zernicki, uh, his lab was involved in this uh, fairly famous officer-involved shooting case called the Ramsey or the Stewart case out in Boone, Kentucky. Were you involved in that where we had uh, the 18-year-old gal 
uh, in the vehicle, and the officer jumped up on the hood of the car and fired four rounds through the windshield, uh, killed the girl, and there was a big deal. I know we were all involved in it to determine uh, whether the the officer's statement was was accurate that she tried to hit him or whether he jumped up on the hood of the car uh, and fired at her in the kneeling position while the car was moving about, you know, five miles an hour, three to five miles an hour. Do you remember that? Were you involved in that case? I do. We were. We actually got to use photogrammetry. There was video from the officer's uh, cruiser camera, dash camera, uh, where we could see things happening. And from that, we were able to use photogrammetry. Once again, we used the point cloud um, to determine the speed of the, I believe it was a Subaru, uh, that was coming out. She was driving that. And we can also match what the officer was doing, his movements. So we can analyze his movements and see if it matches up with what he said he did. And that was one of the more fascinating cases. You know, speaking about fascinating cases, and, and, and because the audience knows we get involved on our death investigations team in, in so many officer-involved shootings, can you and I discuss the Davies shooting out of Lakewood, Colorado? Uh, we've talked about that case on, on our show before using our ballistic scientist, uh, Lance Martini, who was there. And you were there, and Dr. Zernicki was there, I was there, and we were all gathering scientific information so that we could do a complete uh, reconstruction and, and reconciliation. It was a blue-on-blue shooting, very tragic shooting for everybody involved. The victim officer, who was uh, James Davies, uh, the shooting officer, and, of course, uh, you know, Officer Davies's family. Can, can you go through some of that? Because there's a, a fantastic animation on the Not Laboratory site. Yeah, it's been a while, but it was our first case working together. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. I think it was back in, in about 2015. It was, and it was the first time we used match moving to uh, analyze some helicopter, police helicopter footage, some uh, infrared video. Correct. Which you could see the positions of, of the officers involved, other officers, even some uh, dog, police dogs. Uh, no, it wasn't police dogs. No, it was uh, Officer Davies, uh, as you remember, yeah. uh, was on the exterior of a fence that surrounded uh, the residents in Lakewood, Colorado. And this was a really quick Put together entry team of which the shooter was the what we would say the breacher or the officer in front of the stick and a stick is a line of officers there was a very brief stick only three people he went outside the north uh, uh, door of the residence which was through a laundry room and he mm-hmm. came out into a backyard yeah. can you take it from there angelos and i remember he came around and he was pieing around a uh column that was it was a, a uh, carport, carport. Yeah. right and there was another officer which was which davies was davies and he was peeking over a fence exactly peeking over a fence he he wasn't sure if the they were coming out who it was and he he actually he knew he, he called out to the officer because right. he could see him yeah he called out and i forget the name the, of well we don't need to know the yeah. officer <laughs> but when he when he called out to the officer uh, the officer seemed to be uh, startled by that, and he had an M4, which is a point five five six uh, semi-automatic rifle, uh, like a, you would say an AR-15, mm-hmm. and he had what was called an EOTech sight on it, right? A uh, what we call an OEG or an occluded eye gun sight, and he brought it up to bear on Officer Davies. Uh, immediately fired one round, caught Officer Davies underneath the left eye. Killed him instantly. Yeah. Uh, there was some scatter fire after that. Uh, talk about that 
shooting scene and what you and and uh, Dr. Zernicki had to do there. Yeah, so first thing we did, and I remember you were on site for this, we did the laser scanning of the site. And there was still evidence of the bullet strikes on an apartment building that was in the background. And uh, we were able, again, take that 3D point cloud, which has now all the evidence. You've got the bullet strikes. You've got there's a hole in the, uh, in the actual wooden fence, the privacy fence. Uh, that was all from the, from the shooter. Uh, and we take that back, and we're able to connect the dots, basically, do bullet trajectory analysis. And as I mentioned earlier, when we did the analysis of the video, we could see Davies in that video uh, s- sitting up on that fence. So we knew his position prior to the shooting. Um, and then we were able to see if that bullet went through and hit the – which bullets hit the back of the uh, – the uh, apartment. Correct. And there were about five bullets that, that hit uh, the back of that apartment building, and it actually uh, bounced off some uh, wiring, some conduit, mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of things like that. Officer Davies was, was struck, like I said, and killed instantly with one round. And then we had to basically reconstruct everything. You were doing it your way. I did it by actually building the shooting system with the EOTech site and and with the illuminator, which was a surefire uh, flashlight attached to the uh, the barrel of that gun. Mm -hmm. And then I wore a special pair of uh, video glasses where I could look right through the video glasses into the site, and we used a surrogate, remember? Mm -hmm. It was a little bit scary because the (laughs) surrogate that we used, if you remember, was one of the attorneys who looked about 90% like Officer Davies in complexion, shaved hair, height, weight, dressed in a police uniform. It was uh, was surrealistic, I guess. Not scary, but surrealistic. But uh, I thought we all did a fascinating job on that case, and and it worked out well for the family. It did, yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the education. We know you've got a master's degree in architecture. What about some of the the technical uh, training uh, and certifications that you have to have to do what you do? Well, um, as I said, with the drone, you have to get certified for that. There's accident reconstruction certification. Um, A lot of the training happens being mentored by, for example, Dr. Zernike or engineers uh, that have been in this industry for a long time and one of the leading experts in the nation. Um, those are basically the thing, how, we, how we learn our job. We, we're taking the skills that we learn in, whether it's an architecture degree or a fine arts degree, and applying that to, to uh, our work. So, Angelos, I'm sure we've got some people out in the audience that are listening to you and saying to themselves, man, that's a, that's a fascinating career. I'd like to get involved in something like that. What advice would you give members of our audience that are looking at a career uh, in forensics and, and maybe have a computer background, uh, a technical background like you, or even, you know, playing around with drones and are pretty good about it? What type of advice would you give them as to how they should start moving their education forward? I would say if you have already have the computer skills, uh, the artistic side of it, make sure you have the scientific part of it, which is the math and the physics, the science, because everything has to be based on science. So you can make beautiful renderings, and there's lots of people out there who do that. But if you don't know the science behind it, you'll have a hard time because what we're taking – what we're doing is taking what an engineer or we ourselves do our own analysis of, of evidence. And we have to take that and then make a 
in a, in a way a pretty picture, something that someone can understand. But you have to know that that uh, base for it. Otherwise, it's, it's not going to help anybody. And, you know, you guys put together perhaps the most technical reports uh, that I've ever seen in my life. I, I think that you guys are absolutely mm-hmm. the best in the country, and, and that's why – uh, you know, we have that strategic relationship uh, with Knott's with, uh, Laboratory and, and Martinelli and & Associates and the Death Investigations team. But, you know, just putting all those renderings together is just one side of it. You also have to give testimony, don't you? Sure. Yeah. Oh, the, I mean, the uh, engineer is usually the one who goes to testify. Um, animators go as well sometimes to explain for example, match moving or, or photogrammetry to explain how those findings were made. They have to be able to be based on science. So whether the engineer or the animator uh, can do that uh, and, and have it apply or admissible, admissible to the court. Right. And, you know, you, earlier you mentioned uh, the word dauber. And uh, <laughs> I think we've talked about dauber before on, on a thread of evidence in a dauber uh, motion or actually a Dauber hearing is where uh, we're asked questions. It's more of an interrogation uh, about what our education, training, and experience is and why our, our findings and opinions are valid, right. why they're scientifically based. So we look at uh, peer-reviewed reports uh, or articles that we've written, uh, special training that we have, you know, things like that. And But you have to be able to talk to the trier of a fact, which is a judge or a jury, huh? Right, right. So you got to synthesize very, very technical things like we're talking about here on a thread of evidence, but make it palatable and understandable so that a basic uh, jury member that has no experience or training in that can understand just what we're doing. Yep, and that's that's my job. <laughs> well, let's go back to the uh, Kennedy assassination single bullet theory project. Just where is that project right now? So it's currently on hold. Um, Mr. John Orr and Peter Russo, the, the documentary producer, were funding this out of their own pockets, and they've exhausted those funds. So at this point, they are going around and trying to get investors. And uh, actually, they've, they've been involved with a, uh, a Hollywood producer um, who's, who heard about the project and was interested and actually spent about two hours showing this producer, the animations. Uh, and uh, there's other investors who are also interested. So if somebody wanted to get, uh, somebody's interested listening to this and say, oh, man, that is so cool. I wish I could get involved in some aspect of this project as an investor. How could they go about doing something like that? Yeah. Um, the best thing to do, I, I can give you John Orr's uh, contact information uh, and, and contact him directly, and he'd be happy to do one-on-one with you and uh, talk to you about the opportunity to uh, contribute and invest in this uh, project. Well, go ahead and give out the email address so people can get a hold of you or contact information for John Orr. So if you want to contact John Orr, uh, the best way would be to go to uh, the following URL, which is www.mountainrivercabins.com slash JFK. And on that page, you'll be able to find more information about it. It actually has the the report that he submitted to Janet Reno. And then there's an email at the very bottom to be able to contact Mr. Orr. Let's give it out one more time. Uh, The URL is www.mountainrivercabins.com slash JFK. And that's a front slash. That's right. Listen, Angelos, I can't thank you enough for stopping by uh, 
Martinelli and Associates in our studios for America Out Loud and discussing this fascinating case and what you do for a living uh, as a uh, forensic animator. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli and forensic animator Angelos Leilaglu uh, discussing all about the JFK assassination and the single bullet theory. And you're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud.